Good morning, everyone. Uh, it, is, it is my pleasure to be here this morning. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here and see all that, uh, all that God is doing here in Deniston this morning. Uh, we're looking at kindness this morning. Uh, and let me just read what Paul says uh, in Galatians uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 22. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul gives a very similar list in uh, Colossians as well. And when Paul repeats himself, uh, it's usually quite a good time to pay attention. In fact, any time anybody in the Bible repeats themselves, it's usually worth uh, paying attention. And on one level, kindness seems rather a dull attribute. You know, in society, we've kind of simplified kindness. You know, for us, kindness is simply just being, uh, be nice. We say if someone's very kind. It means it means they're very nice, or they're or they're pleasant, or they're or they're smiley, uh, or they say complimentary things. You know that's what we associate with uh, with niceness. And I know lots of people, and you you know lots of people who who maybe fit that definition of kind. You know, we I work with people who are they're nice. People would probably say my colleagues would say they're they're kind. Uh, what Paul's talking about is, is something a little bit more. Uh, this, is, this is Christian kindness. Uh, and while not less than any of these things, like you, you can't do Christian kindness and not be nice. Um, but what we want to see it is that Christian kindness is, is, is more. There's more to it. There's something about it that's going to set us apart uh, from the world. It's like with any of these gifts and fruit, Sorry, that, that Paul is mentioning here in Galatians. You can be aware of these on one level, but to actually really carry them out, for them to characterize you is, is another level entirely. It's like I, I follow football, but I'm only a follower. I, I keep an eye on the score. I watched the cup final last night, not because I'm a massive football fan, but because if you live in the west of Scotland, the conversation in the staff room runs pretty dry uh, if you don't know what happened at the weekend in terms of the football. So I keep informed. I know the scores. I have an idea who the players are. I can get by. I can bluff my way through most conversations about, about football. But then there's the football fans. And these are, these are hardcore. These are the guys who spent £7,000 on tickets in Madrid last night plus their flights. These are the ones who, they, they buy the tickets, they buy all the strips, they're at, they're at the games, they, they know every single player, they know every single statistic. And they're different. And that's what we should be like. Christianity is, should be more than a mere passing interest in the fruit of the Spirit. This should actually, to be a Christian is to be obsessed, is to be driven by a passion for God and driven by a passion to display these characteristics because these are the characteristics of God. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the third person of the Trinity. These are not uh, descriptions that Paul has just plucked randomly 
sort of out of the ether. Uh, He's getting this from God himself. And when you start thinking about kindness, what you quickly realize is that kindness isn't always nice. Uh, If you're a parent uh, or you've you've been a child, uh, then you'll know that kindness sometimes can feel unpleasant. Uh, You know, when I tell my children that they're no, they're not allowed any more junk food and they can't have any more sweets. They think I'm being unkind, uh, but I'm not. Or when I discipline them or to correct their behavior, they probably think I'm being unkind. You see, kindness is complicated. Uh, To be kind can sometimes mean you lose friends. You might lose relationship because in kindness we tell the truth and sometimes people don't like the truth Uh, so kindness is it's complicated therefore we need to be careful that we get it right Uh, and to do that we need a model we need an example uh, so that we can check what we think kindness is against what kindness actually is Uh, and what we're going to do this morning is is have a little look in the old testament uh, because that's the scriptures paul looked at Uh, When Paul's thinking about the the fruit of the Spirit, uh, Paul is referring to his Old Testament scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Exodus uh, chapter 34. In fact, we're going to probably start in chapter 33. I'll just give you a little bit of background uh, to what is going on. Uh, We'll probably go 33 verse 12 to to 34 verse 8. But what's been happening prior to this is uh, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've been rescued through the Red Sea. God has, has saved them. They're now in the wilderness and they've, they're at Mount Sinai. And Moses has gone up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, and he's, he's up the mountain for, for quite some time. 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is on the mountain. And there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a big cloud. And the people have been told, don't come anywhere near the mountain or you're going to die. And what happens is the people lose heart. Uh, And they get Moses' brother uh, to make them an idol, a golden calf, uh, to worship. It's a picture of insanity. God has just brought them out of Egypt. like A matter of maybe months or years previous, and now they're turning to a golden calf. Um, and Moses returns he's, 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 God tells him what's going on down in the camp and he comes down the mountain with the two tablets with the ten commandments on them and he, he smashes the tablets on the ground and he destroys the idol and God tells Moses that he's going to give the people the promised land he's going to take them into the promised land uh, he's going to make sure they get it but God says I'm, I'm not going to go with you because if I go with you, I'm probably going to destroy you. And when Moses hears this and when the people hear this, they are, they are absolutely distraught. Because what they don't want, the thing that, thing that they're scared of is, is losing their relationship with God. Because that's their identity. And what you see is, that, is this true desire in the people to have this relationship with God. They don't just want the blessings of God. They actually want 
the relationship with God. And that's something to be to note. Okay, the blessings of God without the relationship with God are no blessings at all. Okay, we want we want a relationship with God, and this is what the people want. And Moses appeals to God, and we pick this up in thirty-three, verse twelve, and it's and he says he says this. Moses says to the Lord. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses is saying, what sets us apart is the fact that God, you are with us. And so they're scared of losing this. And then God says this in verse 17. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses asks in verse 18 this most amazing, bold question. Imagine Moses, he's an old man. He's probably about 80. He's weary. And he asks this just amazing, bold question. He says, Moses says, Please show me your glory. That's a bold question to ask. And God replies and he says, I will make all my goodness, that's his glory, glory pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So you have this amazing response from God to Moses and this response is actually a response of kindness he says to Moses it's so tender he says no you you can't you can't see my glory but what I'm going to do I'm going to put you in a crack in the rock and the hand that made the universe is going to cover you and I'm going to shield you like a father shielding their child and Moses well, then they get to see the back of God uh, as God passes. He says, and I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And then we read these amazing words. Uh, and this is where I really want to focus this morning. This is God's description of himself. So the Lord says to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone Listen to this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. God reveals himself to Moses. And the first thing God reveals to Moses is his name. And he, and he actually repeats his name twice. And it'll be translated in your Bible as the word Lord uh, in capital letters. And this in Exodus 34 is the only place in the Bible where God repeats his name twice. Uh, and again, we pay attention to that. And God's name is, is in Jew, Jewish people wouldn't write it down. They had too much reverence for it. Uh, but we, we translate it, we say it's, his name is I am who I am. Or I will be uh, what I will be. He is the God that is. He is the essence of absolute being. He is before all things, he is over all things, and he rules all things. And with that in mind, the words that follow in God's description of himself are unexpected. Because we might expect, if God's going to describe himself, that he, he might describe himself as an all-powerful, all-knowing, mighty, terrible-to-behold God. And he is all those things. But that's, that's not how he describes himself. How he's going to describe himself sets him apart from any other God. Even the God of any other major religion in the world is nothing like this. This is not how any other God describes himself. Rather, what does he say about himself? He says he is a God of mercy and grace. He is a God who is slow to anger. He is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness or, or truth. He says he keeps steadfast love for thousands. He's a God who forgives sin and iniquity. He's a God who's just. That's not the description that perhaps people expected. It's actually not how people consider the God of the Old Testament. We get this odd uh, description sometimes. People say, oh, well, the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace, and the God of the Old Testament is a God of, of wrath and anger. Well, this is the Old Testament, and this is how God describes himself in the Old Testament. And in the middle of this description is found perhaps one of the most important words in, in Hebrew. Now, I'll qualify this at the start. I am, no, I am no Hebrew scholar, okay? I only know about, well, at the minute, I can only remember one word of Hebrew, which is the one I have in my notes. Um, but uh, Michael Card, who some of you might know as him more from being a singer-songwriter, uh, Michael Card is actually a, a pretty gifted theologian as well. Uh, and he's actually written a little book uh, about this word and the word uh, is the word called hesed h-e-s-e-d uh, and it's it's found in this passage and it's found twice and it's a really difficult word to translate uh, not because we don't know what it means but rather because its meaning is so rich and so full and so amazing that translators actually find it hard to translate it with just one word uh, and it's translated in ESV, in my translation, as steadfast love. It can also be translated as goodness, kindness, love, graciousness, loyalty, faithfulness, or perhaps 
as it's been most frequently translated throughout the history of translation as loving kindness. They actually invented a word in English to translate this word. Uh, David, writing in Psalm 23, says, Surely goodness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life. And the word has such a rich meaning that in order to fully understand it, writers would often surround it with, with other associated words uh, to give it some context. These are like, like planets orbiting around the sun. Uh, and these words include phrases like mercy and grace and faithfulness or truth. Michael Card says, as a definition, has said is, when the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. That's what said is. And what God says here about himself is that he is said, He is loving kindness. And it's not just that he's a little bit loving kindness. It says he, he abounds in steadfast love or he abounds in loving kindness. It's, it's a word which speaks of being jam-packed. Uh, jam-packed to the point of overflowing, infinite, eternal overflowing. This is like you go to a restaurant and you get unlimited refills. This is unlimited refills of loving kindness. And therefore, because he is has said, because he is loving kindness, he is merciful and gracious. If those are precious words to Moses. If you consider what's just happened, you know, Moses is he's on the mountain again. He's not sure. Is God going to go with us? Is he going to, is he going to leave us? He says he's, he's slow to anger. God, God doesn't fly off the handle. God is not impulsive or moody. He doesn't get hangry. He forgives sin. Again, precious word. The little word for, see, for sin means missing the target. And boy, have the Israelites missed the target. They're not even shooting at the same thing. Again, how precious for Moses to hear this description from, from God as he's in the cleft in the rock. But also, he is, he's just. He's not a doormat. In his loving kindness, in his has said, he is a just God. He's holy and, and sin has consequences. Be unkind if it didn't. Because although he's slow to anger and although he forgives, he also has to deal with sin. It can't just be ignored or swept under the rug. Try not to knock your guitar over. <laughs> and then there's this this little tricky phrase here, he says about the punishment for sins being passed on to, is that going to fall over? <laughs> I might be in need of some forgiveness now. <laughs> we'll test slow for anger on that one. Uh, there's this little passage about the, about the punishment for sin being passed on from one generation to the next. And it's a, 
ideally, okay, we could just ignore that and move on this morning, but uh, we can't do that because this is God's word. Uh, he, uh, God says in other parts of Exodus, in Exodus 20, you shall not bow down to the idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But then he also says in Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. So, so what is it? Is, does God punish? You know, because the sins of the fathers, the children get punished down the line? Or do people not get punished because of the sins of the father? And I think when we look at this passage, we often assume that the, the next generation are innocent. And actually, as we, if you read right through Exodus, we find that actually that's not the case. We can't assume that the children or the children's children are innocent because children are so, so easily pick up attitudes and behavior from their parents. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I see this. You know, I've been a little, maybe a little second year boy who's a royal pain in the backside who's arrogant and then and along comes parents night and it's a revelation <laughs> I think the apple doesn't very fall very far from the tree uh, or we see young children I grew up in Northern Ireland and we I see you see young children six seven year olds spouting sectarian hatred where do they get it from their parents or, or racism comes from their parents or perhaps most cuttings when you see one of your own children display attitudes which you think oh my goodness they got that from me it's not good so the children are each generation is not necessarily innocent and there can be generational consequence for sin not necessarily punishment but just consequence and we see this through exodus where the next generation you know the guys all down in the campsite below the mountain, none of them get to the promised land, apart from two. Why? Because they're made to wander in the desert for 40 years. And it's, a, and it's actually, it's the third and the fourth generation who get into the promised land. It takes that long. So there's a knock-on effect. But what we need to know is that God puts a time limit on this. It is to the third and the fourth generation. It's not forever. Why? Because he's a God of mercy. Because he's said, he's loving kindness. And when Moses hears all this, he has one response. He bows his head towards the earth and worships. Verse 8. That is, that is really, the, that's the only suitable response we have whenever God reveals himself like this to us. In the, in the New Testament, the word has said is not found directly because uh, New Testament's written in Greek. But the idea and influence of has said, this idea of loving kindness is everywhere. Uh, you know, most of the New Testament writers were, were Jewish. They were completely immersed in the Hebrew scriptures. You like it like this, they, they thought about God in Hebrew and wrote in Greek. And they tell us as they write about God to us in the New Testament, that God does not reveal himself in a fiery cloud on a mountaintop where only one person can approach him. 
God, in his loving kindness, is now going to reveal himself as a person. Listen to what John writes at the start of his gospel and and hear the echo of Exodus 34. Uh, John says this in verse 114. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, or full of kindness and faithfulness, or full of hesed and faithfulness. John writes in Greek, but thinks in Hebrew. And what John is saying is that Jesus Christ is God. He is the God who was on the mountain with Moses and now he's made human and he dwells among his people. And the good news is that Jesus doesn't just come and and tell us that he's kind, but he comes and he demonstrates his loving kindness to us. He, He acts it out. He displays in his life and his death all that loving kindness is, all that kindness is. That Paul writes in, in Titus 3, verses 4 to 7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Or in Ephesians 2, 4 to 7, God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, in loving kindness and mercy, God became one of us. The creator the universe, the God who who thunders on the mountain, the God whom no one could approach, not even the sheep could go near the mountain, never mind the people, the God whose face could not be seen by Moses is now going to be seen face to face. If you think about it, when Mary looks at her newborn son lying in the manger, she's looking at the face of God which Moses couldn't see. When the crowds looked on as Jesus taught, they were looking at the face of God. When the blind gained their sight, the first thing they seen was the face of God. When the guards beat him and spat on him, they spat on the face of God. When the blood from the crown of thorns ran down, it ran down the very face of God. As those who crucified him looked up as he hung on the cross, they looked at the face of God. Loving kindness in action. Our salvation is a free gift offered as a result of the costliest act of kindness ever known in history. Remember the definition of said. When the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. But what does that look like in our lives? 
You know, I've just described the ultimate model of kindness. Uh, how can we possibly display kindness like that? Because it's so much more than being nice. The reality is we can't. We actually can't do it on our own. Uh, Paul just rightly describes this as a, as a fruit of the Spirit. So it can only be produced in our lives by the Spirit. We can't show this level of kindness on our own. This is, this is supernatural kindness. That doesn't mean that we sit back and kind of wait for a holy glow to come on us and suddenly we're, we're kind. No, the, the fruit of the Spirit are supposed to be displayed in the real world amongst broken people. You know, on, on my own, probably in a soundproof room, I can be really kind. On my own on my commute <laughs> in the morning from East Kilbride into Glasgow in the car, I'm not with anybody else, but there's other people around. Kindness gets hard when they cut you up. But God tells us we're to live in a community. And why are we to live in a community? So that we have opportunity to display the fruit of the Spirit, to display kindness, especially when it's hard to be kind. We're not supposed to live alone. We exist together as church. And this is where kindness should be seen first amongst our brothers and sisters. This is where we display it. So what does it look like? Kindness is not reciprocal. I don't, you know, I'll not be kind to Mark so that Mark will be kind to me. Okay, that's not how it works. It's not a business transaction. Because that's not how God shows his kindness to us. You know, he was kind to us while we were enemies and he, he neither expects us to pay him back nor could we pay him back. No, kindness does not demand anything back in return. Kindness is costly. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you emotional energy. It, it might make you unpopular to tell the truth. But it's worth it. Kindness makes you joyful. Why? Because when you're being kind as a fruit of the Spirit, you're reflecting the character of your maker. And God is an infinitely joyful God. And when you behave like him and when you model Christ-like qualities, then joy is yours. It's more blessed to give than to receive. There was a story in Michael Card's book um, about a young man uh, in the States who drunk driver uh, and he, he kills he kills another young guy and the parents of the of the peep, of the guy that he kills actually end up almost adopting him they, they forgive him they he, be, he almost he becomes a member of their family and he phones them up almost every day to talk to them now that that, was, that would not have been easy for those parents to, to do that. This guy killed their son. 
in a moment of madness and stupidity. But still, they as Christians model the loving kindness of God towards him. And it, it cost them. It had to cost them. Yet that's what it looks like. There's a sacrifice involved, but there's joy now in their relationship. I don't know if you've ever known the loving kindness of God. I know there's going to be some space at the back for prayer. Perhaps you need to experience, you need to know the loving kindness of God this morning. Maybe you need to know God's loving kindness in, in healing. Perhaps you just need to, you're just having a, if it's a bad week, you need to know that God loves you. Perhaps you would need to know that God actually loves you to the point of death, that he died for you. And if you want to experience that loving kindness, then there will be those who will happily pray for you uh, and, and talk with you uh, and, and help show you more uh, of just how much God loves you, of how kind God actually is. Remember, it's unlimited refills on God's kindness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a, as a God of mercy and a God of love, a God who is also holy. And yet, we're, yet we're, we're so undeserving. Yet in your loving kindness, you lavish us with grace. You, you lavish us with love. Father, would you open our hearts this morning, Lord, to receive this? Would you open our hearts so that not just that we know it in our heads, but that, that we feel it in our souls. Uh, that you are the God of said, You are the God who is indescribably uh, personifies loving kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.